is from Daniel, verses 13 to 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But it not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. If you brought a Bible with you, open to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where we're going to be this morning. And uh, it is 10 o'clock, so if you haven't set your fantasy football league rosters, now's the time. Um, we are going through the year of the Bible this year from, from January to December, from uh, Genesis to Revelation. We're almost to the end of the Old Testament. We're in the, uh, the minor prophets. Daniel's sort of the transition point from the major prophets to the minor prophets. And a few more weeks here in September, we'll finish the Old Testament and then move into the New Testament. We're going to have a really, I think, meaningful activity the last week of the Old Testament on September 29th, where we're going to ask you to sort of think through what experiences you've had as we've gone through these nine months, as you've maybe read through the whole Old Testament on your own. So you might start thinking about that. Uh, what has God been speaking to you through his word here in the Old Testament? Today we're in the book of Daniel, uh, and Daniel's one of the better-known books in the Old Testament because so many of the stories lend themselves so well to stories we can teach kids. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar turning himself into a cow or, or mentally turning into a cow and grazing in the fields until he turns back to God. They're kind of stories that lend themselves well to flannel graphs. And that's what the, the first half of the book of Daniel is about, these well-known Sunday school stories but behind the stories are a really core truth for all of us, kids and adults alike, is that even when it seems like evil is winning, God is in control. Even when it seems like evil is winning, God is in control. And that's what Daniel's story is really all about. Even when it seems like evil is succeeding, that God always holds thing in his hand, things in his hands. And this is important for Daniel because he writes during the time of the Babylonian exile. Just a quick reminder of the overview of the Old Testament, uh, just to put everything in context. Around 2000 BC, we have Abraham. Abraham is the, the sort of patriarch of the whole uh, biblical story. He's the one who puts his trust in God, and God promises him a great covenant, a great people, and a great land. So that's about 2000 BC. About 500 years later, we have David. Uh, this is about uh, 1500 BC. I'm sorry, we have Moses. Goodness. 
I almost got that really wrong. We have Moses. Moses leads the people out of uh, Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Let my people go. That's this guy. About 500 years later, we have David. David is the great king from whom the Messiah is promised to come. David and Goliath, that whole thing. And then about 500 years later, we have the exile to Babylon. So 2000 BC, Abraham, 1500 BC, Moses, 1000 BC, David, 500 BC, uh, Babylonian exile. Any guesses on what comes after that? At 1 AD? Yeah, Jesus. Okay, good. Um, I just wanted to see if you guys were listening or you're still checking your fantasy teams. All right, so, so we're, we're at the, the, the last of those four sort of pivotal moments in the Old Testament history where the exile to Babylon has happened, and the question becomes, how do we live faithfully for God when it seems like God isn't in control, when it seems like evil has conquered Jerusalem, it's destroyed the temple, and everything in our known world at the time is ruled by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire? And the way that God uh, confronts that for Daniel and through the book of Daniel is to give them a vision in the second half of the book about what will ultimately be true. The first half of the book are stories that we teach in Sunday school. The second half of the story are prophetic eschatological visions, visions of the end times. They're not usually ones we teach in kids' Sunday school because they seem so remarkable and fantastic and difficult to get our minds around. It's kind of like the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. But the two halves of the book go together because they inform each other. They give courage to us to be faithful now when we have a big picture of what God's up to in history. Or to put it a different way, the first half of the book is kind of like the worm's view of history. How does Daniel respond in the moment? But the second half of the book is sort of the eagle's view of history, where it sees all the kingdoms of this world coming and going, knowing that ultimately God's hand is behind all of it. Well, we're going to zero in on one of those stories here in chapter 3. Uh, a story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up for their faith in spite of overwhelming personal cost. And the reason I think this passage is really worth zeroing in on is because it gets to the crux of what Daniel is about. You know, Daniel's not just about uh, information about the end times for their own sake. It's not just about inspiring stories uh, for their own sake, but it's to give us a picture of how would we respond if we were pressed on our convictions? How would we be willing to stand up for our faith or not if the moment came where we were pressed to a point of decision? This is a story that gives us a picture of what, at least what I would want for myself and what I'd want for you, to be a person of character and conviction and commitment to God, no matter what the cost might be. Well, to understand chapter 3, you kind of have to understand the chapter that came before it, which is chapter 2. I went to seminary to know stuff like that. And uh, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the the tyrant, the king of Babylon, who has absolute authority over the known world, has a dream. And like so many of my dreams and your dreams, he can't quite remember it the next morning, except to know that it was really emotionally impactful on him, and he'd like someone to explain it to him. Now, most of us just sort of end that sort of sense of loss at that point. But Nebuchadnezzar, being a, a tyrant, says, no, I'm gonna, someone's going to tell me what's in my head. And so he calls all of the wise men of Babylon and says, someone needs to explain this dream to me. And they say, okay, sure, what's the dream? And he says, I don't remember, but if you don't figure it out, you're going to die. <laughs> okay. I don't, he may have tweeted it. I'm not sure how he got that information out there. But, um, and so uh, the wise men of Babylon are panicked. And Daniel says, well, I can't figure this out, but God can figure it out. And so he goes before the king and says, here's what your dream was. And he explains this really weird dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you dreamed. You dreamed that uh, there's a figure there that had a gold head and then it had a silver body and arms, and then it had bronze legs, and then it had iron and clay feet. 
And Nebuchadnezzar says, that's right, that's what I dreamed about. I don't know what kind of burrito you eat to have that kind of dream, but whatever, all right, dreams are weird. And Daniel says, not only do I know what you dreamt about without being told, I can tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, I'm all yours, I want to know. And Daniel says, you're the gold head. It's a good thing to say to a king. Kings like being gold heads. Uh, uh, that's great. But you're going to be followed by a kingdom right after yours. Uh, it turns out to be the Persians. And you're going to be followed by a kingdom right after them. And you're going to be followed by a kingdom after them. And they're going to be the, the silver body and then the bronze legs and the iron feet. And all those kingdoms will pass away. And ultimately, there's only one kingdom that'll last. That's a kingdom that God will set up. And Nebuchadnezzar is moved and he's stirred and his emotions are raised, but he's not changed, right? He, he has this moment of like, that's amazing. Your God is amazing. I can tell you that. He bows down even to worship Daniel. And so this is remarkable. But in chapter three opens and Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what I really liked? That gold head thing. <laughs> in fact, what if the whole thing was gold and I was that thing and everyone worshiped that? That is not what you're supposed to take away from that dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, what you're supposed to take away from that dream is that God is in control of history and you should serve with an open hand knowing that he causes kings to rise and fall. Nebuchadnezzar says, no, 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 no. What I take away from that is that there's a threat to my security and I'm going to drive it out. And so Nebuchadnezzar gathers all of his civil servants from all around his empire and brings them together in one place and constructs in front of them this giant golden monument to himself and to the Babylonian empire and says, we are going to drive out a lack of loyalty and a lack of commitment to the Babylonian Empire. And we're going to do it through religion, because religion can unite the people. And so we're going to drive the people together, and we're going to drive out insurrection. And that way, my empire will last forever. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example of spitting into the wind. Right? And there's this tension in what happens, because it describes this golden statue as 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, deliberately incredibly tall and incredibly topply, uh, topply? Can topply be a word? You guys know what I mean, right? Likely to topple. Um, and uh, a cubit is, a, is a, a Hebrew word meaning, a, a, or an Aramaic word meaning a span of uh, width of a hand. So 60 cubits, depending on the size of a person's hand, could have been 40 feet, could have been 70 feet, sort of depends. And Nebuchadnezzar says to everyone, you need to bow down and worship this, uh, this statue I've set up. And not just to everyone, but everyone who works for him. This is a, sort of the example the fitting example of abuse of power right here. And so he calls everyone who works in the civil service and says, you're going to show your loyalty to me and to the empire uh, by worshiping before this image of us. And it's impressive, this, this overwhelming size example, but it's also incredibly foolish, right? He's just been told that his kingdom will pass away. And he says, no, I'm going to show that I'm in control. He's been told that... Uh, Idol, idols come and go, but God lasts forever, and he sets up an idol. It's an absurd example of trying to control what only God can control. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to get caught in the crosswinds here. So a quick instruction of who these guys are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or in Hebrew, their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we meet in chapter 1. They're part of the exiled group of teenagers who've been brought from Jerusalem out to Babylon. And they've been brought there in order to be indoctrinated, uh, indoctrinated into becoming good Babylonian boys and girls. And so their names are changed, their identities are changed, their, uh, their entire way of life is changed, and they have to try to make their, world, make their way in this foreign world. And they've done really well. In chapter 2, it says they're promoted to this high level of government service, 
in their adopted homeland, which as an immigrant, as a refugee, that's no small feat. And they take over this significant role, and they're invited, commanded, invited, you know, potato, potato, to come out to this uh, example of loyalty and pledge a loyalty oath to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But the problem is that the loyalty is not just a political act, but a religious one. In verse 4, the herald proclaims aloud, saying, You're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, I don't know the Scots were there, but okay, every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So they are brought into this moment with sort of classic carrot and stick, right? We're going to take all these instruments from all over the known Babylonian world. We're going to bring them together. We're going to create this amazing musical festival, amazing religious experience. We're going to, in awe, cause us all to worship. And if you don't, we're going to kill you. <laughs> That's sort of the carrot and the stick part of it. And you're going to show your loyalty that you're good Babylonians by expressing it religiously. Again, up to this point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had done really well at becoming Babylonians. In fact, they're referred to by their Babylonian names. This part of the Bible is unique in being written into Aramaic, the language of the Babylonians. They had sort of taken on the Babylonian culture. They'd been faithful civil servants, as far as we know. They'd lived and dwelt with the Babylonians in their community. They'd worked well and worked their way up the ladder. But now they're facing a moment of compromise that they can't go past. Now, it's worth contrasting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with what some of their Jewish contemporaries were doing. According to the book of Jeremiah, some of the Jewish people during exile had said, we are not going to go into that city. We're not going to go into Babylon. We're not going to learn the language. We're not going to dwell here. This is temporary. We're going to stay outside the city. We're not going to connect with these foreigners. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego represented a group of people who said, no, we're going to work for the welfare of Babylon, to paraphrase Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to be people who learn the language, who put down roots here, who eat the food, who connect here, and yet we're going to have convictions and lines that we will not cross. So they're not rigid, they're not brittle, they're not unwilling to be connected, but they do have deep convictions of lines that they will not cross. And that core line for them is idolatry. We will not worship any god but God, even if it might cost us our life. Of course, it'd be tempting to give in at this moment, right? Maybe, maybe are you guys good at rationalizing? I'm really good at rationalizing sometimes what I want to do. Um, think about some of the rationalizing ways they could have uh, come up with excuses for this. You know, like, we, we can't serve God if we're dead, right? So we gotta, gotta protect ourselves in order to do good in the future. If we're gonna be able to uh, carry out this important political office, we're gonna, God's gonna expect that we're gonna have to make political compromises in order to have the greater good of having influence in the future. God knows my heart's not in this, right? It's just a physical act. What does it matter if I lay down? I lay down to go to bed every night. It's not, it doesn't matter what my body does. My heart, God knows my heart. I mean, in 1 Kings, didn't Naaman ask Elijah if he could bow down with his uh, king before the foreign god's temple? And Elijah seemed okay with it. God's probably fine. He knows what my heart really is in this. Okay, so may, maybe it is wrong. Maybe it is wrong. But God will forgive me, right? God's a God of forgiveness. Look at what Moses did and Abraham did. They did way worse stuff than this. Like, God's fine with this. Look, this whole anti-idolatry thing, that's probably fine for like way back in the past, but this is the fifth century BC. This is modern day 
right? Like, this is, uh, I can't believe that in the year, whatever this would be, 555 BC, God would expect me to keep these archaic rules. Um, wouldn't it be better if I just pretended on the outside so that I could preserve my influence for future generations? Any of these sound compelling to you? Have you made any of these excuses to yourself or to people around you to sort of excuse you from having the consequences or the convictions that you know you're supposed to have? I have. I've probably done a lot of those things or said a lot of those things in my heart. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those excuses and those compromises do not overwhelm their convictions, right, to their credit and for our benefit. Because while Christians around the world, and even uh, both today and here locally and around the world, have to make these choices, we need to be people of deep conviction, committed to not, uh, not abdicating our convictions for political benefit, which is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tempted to do. This is a clear violation of the command of God. You will have no gods before me. And they are unwilling to give in to where they should never give in. And I'd like to say that at this point that their faith commitments were respected by the Religious Freedom Council of Babylon. That they just said, you know, it's a separation of church and state and you're free to act out of your own convictions. You're free to act out of your own convictions. But Babylon was not big on religious freedom. And uh, so the music goes off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand when everyone else kneels. And Babylonian nationalists, who are jealous and distrustful of these immigrants, bring an accusation about them before the king. This is what it says in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you hear how they describe that? There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. That is just dripping with jealousy, isn't it, right? There are immigrants who you have given our jobs to, right? These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Or to paraphrase, they are not like us. We don't want them here. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have paid attention to the king. They've obeyed his commands, but there are convictions that they will not cross and lines they will not pass. And I wonder, where are your lines and your convictions? Do you have lines that you are unwilling to cross, even if it means risking political loss, personal loss, or even your own security? They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and in verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar threatens them a second time. And he says, if you don't worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then a very foolish line. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Man. Nebuchadnezzar does not struggle with self-esteem, right? What God could possibly deliver me, could deliver you from me? Nebuchadnezzar, over and over in the book of Daniel, will have to have reminders of his own frailty and his own humility, and he'll never fully learn the lesson. But God shows in his power that Nebuchadnezzar is not in control. We'll talk about what happens in a few minutes, but I, I want to take a, a side here to say, like, what would help you become the sort of person of conviction that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like? I mean, how do you cultivate that kind of character, that sort of backbone of steel where you can say, I will not bow? And if you're a parent or maybe a grandparent, how do you help the people that you're helping to grow and to lead become those sorts of people of conviction as well? Well, a, a couple answers. Um, one, it, it, here's what it's not. It's not a matter of isolation. Right? We mentioned earlier, there are other Jewish people in this generation who attempt to have conviction by having uh, isolation and brittleness and rigidity and just saying, we're never going to compromise on anything. 
We'll never connect with the world, and that way we'll never lose our convictions. Well, that, that doesn't work in Jeremiah's book. It doesn't work in Daniel's book either. But rather, what does work for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I think what's helpful for us today, is to have a God-focused view of history. I mean, that's what Daniel's all about, right? Daniel's all about seeing that the kingdoms of this world come and go, but God is always in control. When we have a God-sized perspective on history, the problems of our generation seem so much smaller by comparison. And the other thing I think we learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that um, their convictions are formed together, and they're tried together. Now, I'd like to think that if this was just the story of Shadrach, that he would have stood up for his faith. And if this was just the story of Meshach, he would have stood up for his faith. And if this was just the story of Abednego, he would have stood up for his faith. After all, in the companion version of this chapter, in chapter 6, Daniel, all by himself, is willing to stand up for his faith. So this isn't an excuse if you're the only one that you don't have a responsibility to stand. But I I don't think it's a, a coincidence that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand together. But there's something powerful about being in community with people who share your convictions to help deepen your commitment to God. That's part of why life groups are so important and why I'm so grateful for the Greens for helping to lead one for the young adults and the 26 other life groups that we have going on this fall. Who are the sort of people that would stand with you against Nebuchadnezzar? If you haven't found a community like that, I hope you'll find a community in a life group or in a Bible study here at Grace of people that will help deepen your convictions together. Community is so important for that. Social psychology has done a lot of research on this, that um, there have been experiments, and this is why psychologists are, are weird people, as someone who's married to one, um, where they would get like, they'll get like eight actors in a room, and they'll tell all the, uh, all the actors, all right, because, uh, you know, a job's a job. They'll tell the actors, okay, pretend that when we hold up the red card that it's blue, and just really commit to like, this is blue, yeah, this is, this is blue. I, and even though it's plainly a red card, just say it's blue. And then we're going to bring in one person who doesn't know, and we're going to see if you can convince them it's blue. And if you bring in the one person with eight actors, the person who, even though they see plainly it's a red card, will say, yeah, I guess it's blue. Like, they'll just give in. But if you bring in one other actor who will also say, oh, yeah, no, it's red. Yeah, it's red. Then the, then the, the normal person will say, no, it is red. It's, it's red. Because they're willing to stand up to a group as long as there's someone you can stand with. The same thing's true in our faith, right? That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's convictions are deepened by being in community with others with them. All right, well, let's get back to the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resolve to obey God regardless of the cost. And this is how they respond in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I love that response, right? Their lives are threatened, and their response is, Oh, Nebby. Oh, Nebby, Nebby. We don't even need to answer you. Who says that, right? Like, we don't have a defense. We don't need to have a defense because you are not in control. This is the kind of answer I give to my kids when they say, Why can't I have a cupcake? Oh, Andrew, I do not need to answer you about why you can't have a cupcake because I am in control. But I would not say that to a king who had a furnace, right? This is an answer... This is an answer born out of deep trust that God's hand is the one who is behind history, not Nebuchadnezzar. It says in verse 17, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. (laughs) I don't know why the king at the end makes me laugh. Like When they refer to him, they just call him Nebuchadnezzar. They don't call him King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end when they say, like, you are not in control, and then they add, O king. (laughs) 
That's like saying, like, I have diplomatic immunity, officer. Um, <laughs> they're hopeful that God can save them because they have a view that God holds history in their hands. And they've experienced God's personal care for them back in chapter 1. You can, you can read that chapter on your own this week. Uh, and they, they see that God cares for them individually, that he cares for them collectively as a people of Israel, and that ultimately that he is the one who holds history in his hands. As uh, Isaiah 43 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. And then there's this fascinating turn in verse 18, where they say, but if not, because they're not naive, they're not foolish. They know that more faithful people than them have died in the past. And they say, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, right? Like, we do not believe in God because he will protect us. We trust in God and we have our convictions because he is good. And so even if he's not going to deliver us from the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, that does not change our answer. Our convictions are from a deeper place than just out of self-preservation. And so Nebuchadnezzar pats him on the head and says, I'm so proud of your faith. That is so encouraging. I'm so convicted and I think I'm going to turn around. No, he doesn't do that. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 19 says he was filled with fury. The expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Or to put that another way, he, he heated up as much as he could. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, display this remarkable amount of conviction, but their conviction is not met with appreciation, but rather disdain. It's an important lesson for us as well, right? If we're expressing conviction in our generation, in our age, in our family, with our friends, at work, and we're expecting that people are going to say, you go get them. Like, that's great. I love that about you. We're barking up the wrong tree, right? Our convictions are not born out of a desire to impress people, but out of a deep belief about what is true about God and the world. And you and I probably won't face this exact situation. Our lives will never be probably put on the line for our faith. But in smaller ways, our convictions are always tested, right? Those of you guys who are going back to school right now as students are going to have moments this year, I imagine, I, I grieve with you for this, where you're going to be, feel like you're all alone in what you believe, in your classes, uh, with your friends, in social environments, online. You're going to feel like you're the only one. And is it crazy that I don't fit in with what everyone else is expecting of me? Not just student life, of course. This is life in the dating world for you guys who are single where you're going to feel like there's so much pressure to just fit in and just be like everybody else. And how am I supposed to stand up for what I believe about sexuality and marriage when everyone else expects something different of me? Or maybe with your grandkids, you feel like you're, maybe you have young adults, kids, and they're not Christians anymore, or, or they're not living in biblical ethics, and they are giving you a hard time. They're saying, Mom, you are so dated in your view of the world. Can't you just live like everybody else now? Are you going to be willing to stand for the convictions of what God has revealed? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. And even though uh, they're ordered to go into the furnace, they're unharmed. They stand up for what they believe in. And while Nebuchadnezzar doesn't respect it, God delivers them. In verse 22, it says, The furnace was overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the firing furnace. But then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? 
And they answered and said, True, O king. And he answered to them, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The story goes on from then for, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to climb out of a furnace. Don't even know how you do that. That's remarkable. And they come out totally unsinged, unharmed, and only the ropes that had tried to bind them have been burned off. A miracle if there ever was one. There's no physical explanation for what happened. There's no way to sort of write this off except for the direct intervention of God in history. A fulfillment of what Isaiah 43 described, that, that they are protected by God's hand even as he protects his people for eternity. And Nebuchadnezzar, again, is moved, but he's unchanged. He's impressed, but his convictions don't separate. He's uh, stirred emotionally. He thinks this is remarkable, but he still is unwilling to bow his knee before God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, out of their faith, out of their willingness to lay their own personal security on the line, trust in God and see God deliver them. So what do we take away from this story? I mean, the obvious is I want you to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want you to be people that, yes, you work for the good of the communities you're part of. You're willing to engage and help those who are far from God. You're not brittle or rigid, but you're here to help them thrive. But that there are deep convictions and lines that you're unwilling to pass. That your convictions as a Christian help you to be a servant to your community, a servant to the Babylons that we're all part of, but that you are never in subservience to Babylon. That you are always a person marked out separate from the world, because of your convictions to God. But even more than that, I want you to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because I want you to be saved. This story is not just a story about the importance of conviction, but about the importance of the fourth man coming into the furnace to save them. Uh, Christians have long seen in this fourth person that Nebuchadnezzar identifies an example of Jesus before he's born, that a pre-incarnate Christ has come in order to save them from the fire. That could be. It could be Jesus. It could be an angel. It, it honestly doesn't really theologically matter because it points to a deep truth about the gospel, that all of us are like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we have a choice in front of us. Like, do we try to save our life on our own and try to protect ourselves out of our own wit, even if it means giving up on our faith? Or do we allow the world to do their worst to us, knowing that ultimately our salvation is in Jesus' hands alone? And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are we willing to give up our life, metaphorically, spiritually, in order to find it in Christ? This was Jesus' challenge to, hit to us today in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Almost certainly you'll never be asked to put your physical life on the line for what you believe, but today and tomorrow and this week, you'll have a choice of whether you are going to put Christ on the throne of your life, or whether you're going to insist to do things in your own way, for your own benefit, and for your own glory. If you've never taken the step of saying, God, I want you to be on the throne of my life. I want you to be my Lord, and I will serve you and not the other way around. That's the process of what it means to become a Christian. To say, I've tried to live for myself, uh, and it hasn't worked. I've tried to live for my own pleasure and my own good, by my own rules, and under my own authority. And it has led me to rebel against you, God. But I see that Jesus has come and he has lived the life I was supposed to live. And he's died the death I deserve to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that. And I believe he's resurrected from the dead. And I want to follow him as Lord all the days of my life. That's the process of what it means to become a Christian. 
And for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he never makes that choice, right? He never, he's stirred emotionally, but he never makes a choice of actually giving over authority of his life to God. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that is the core belief of their life, that God is in control, not them, and that they serve him, not the other way around. I would love for you to make that choice today, to choose to follow Jesus as well. Well, let's close our time in prayer. God, we are so grateful for the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have sent your son to save them from the fire. And in the same way, you have sent your son to save us from the fire. God, for my friends who are here who have never made the choice to follow you, God, I ask that you would stir in their hearts, not just in a moment, but a deep act of change and conviction to put you on the throne of their lives. That they would pray, Jesus, I, I want to follow you as my Lord and accept your offer of forgiveness for sins. God, would you give us the courage to be people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego this week, even when it's out of line with the world around us. Help us to cultivate friendships that we need, that we can draw on in times of adversity. Help give us community that can help us to grow and courage that can help us to stand. In Christ's name we pray, amen.